So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I would encourage you now at this time to turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll have our scripture reading. Matthew 16, we'll be reading from verses 13 to 18. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I got about eight things that are attached to my ears these days, in-ear monitor and microphone and mask, and never know if I have the right thing on at the right time. I think I got it figured out. So I think I'm uh, old enough at this point that I can use some old man sayings this morning. Uh, so I'm going to start with cold enough for you, and then I'll move on to, did you order this weather? That's a good start. Well, my, my boys are four and a half years old, and so they are five months-ish into preschool. And they've picked up a habit at preschool this year, which it's made its way into our house. So it doesn't matter if we're eating dinner, or if we're playing a game, or if we're watching a movie on the couch, or if I'm doing a project at home, I will look over at one of my boys and he will be doing this. He'll be waiting for me anxiously to call on him so that he can ask a question to me. And so it'll go something like this. Oh, 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 dad, dad. Yeah, buddy. Can I ask you a question? Sure, go ahead, buddy. Why are you doing that thing? Doing, doing what thing? That, that thing you're doing. Picking up the mess that you just made. Oh, Dad, yeah, pal, why? Because you just made a mess. So this, this is kind of generally the everyday routine at our house. Uh, the mess is the routine and the questions are the routine. Now, now, there are few questions, I would say, that are being asked to me on a daily basis that are important questions but for some reason, those questions are urgent to get answered immediately. So I, I'm guessing, parents, you kind of know what I'm talking about with that. Throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see over and over again that Jesus asks questions, and they are not like the questions that I get asked every night at the dinner table. They are questions that have a particular significance to them. Jesus had a way of asking questions that got right to the heart of the issue, got right to the heart of where people were at. But none more than the question that is in our scripture 
today. No question, in my opinion, was more significant than the question that Jesus asked his disciples as they came to Caesarea Philippi. Now, before we get to the question that Jesus asked, I want to focus on the place that he asked it, Caesarea Philippi, because I believe that carries a a particular significance as well. Okay, so in verse 13, it says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So this was a city in Israel, formerly called Dan, going all the way back to the time of Abraham or, or even before the time of Abraham. And the city was known as a place of worship. It was a place of worship all the way back before the time of Abraham when the Canaanites would come and they'd worship the god Baal. Okay, and then that city became a Greek city where they worshiped the god Pan, and they named that city then after the god Pan, Panius. And in the early first century, which is now under Roman control, the city was a center of worship for the Roman god Zeus, and it was renamed Caesarea after the Roman Caesar by Philip, the son of Herod. And since there was already another Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea, they named it after Philip, Caesarea Philippi. But the city continued to be a place where people would come to worship idols and worship false gods. In the center of the city was a temple to the Roman god Zeus, as well as a a temple to the Greek god Pan, as well as many other smaller temples to false gods. Several years ago, my wife with her college, took a trip to Israel, and she visited this city of Caesarea Philippi, and I brought a picture this morning of her. So that is her right in the middle of that big arch there, and where she is standing is what used to be part of that temple to the Greek god Pan. And you'll notice around her are all these little arches, and those are places where they would have placed idols for people to come to bow down and to worship them. I want you for a moment as you're looking at this picture uh, to think about several large temples, a temple to Zeus and a temple to Pan, and then a bunch of idols. And then I want you to also picture large crowds of people that would be waiting just to get there to touch those idols and to bow down to those idols and to worship those idols. That is the backdrop to the question that Jesus asked. So as Jesus and his disciples come into this city of Caesarea Philippi and Jesus looks around and he sees these temples and he sees these idols and he sees the crowds as they worship all of this, he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say that the son of man is? In this question that Jesus initially asks, he doesn't say, to his disciples, what do you think about me? He says, who do other people say that I am? But quietly in this question, Jesus points his disciples to the truth of who he is. He calls himself a name that he used when he talked about himself more than any other name, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is used 80 times in the New Testament, most, almost all of which are talking about Jesus and most of those are by Jesus himself. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man, he said this, he said, but that you may know that the son of man, 
has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise and walk. When Jesus prophesied about his arrest and crucifixion, he said the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. When Jesus prophesied about his own death and resurrection, he said the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When Jesus taught his disciples about eternity, he said when the son of man comes into his glory, So each important thing that Jesus said, he would say, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. And when he said that, he pointed people to his humility, to his humanity, and ultimately to his authority as the Messiah or the Christ. The passage that I believe most clearly shows this correlation between Messiah and son of man is from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which I think Jesus obviously would have been very familiar with as he talked to his disciples in which the Jewish leaders would have been very familiar with, which anyone who knew the Old Testament would have been very familiar with. So I'd like to read that verse together with you if you would. So we have it up on the screen. Uh, Would you say it with me? I saw in night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the vision that Daniel had of the Messiah, who he calls the Son of Man, is what I believe that Jesus was referencing over and over as he continually referred to himself by that name. And when Jesus was on trial, the religious leaders asked him if he was the Christ. And this is how his response came. From now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they immediately said to him, are you saying that you're the son of God? So the people who are familiar with the prophets, the people who are familiar with the Old Testament, when they heard Jesus say, son of man, they would have heard it the way that he intended them to hear it, that he was saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. Now this reference to the title son of man was so significant that the Jewish people wanted to kill Jesus when he said it. And so that was the backdrop for this question that Jesus asked. They're in this city full of temples and idols of false God. And Jesus said, I am the son of man. And then Jesus asked the most important question that he or that anyone else could ever ask. He says in verse 15, who do you say that I am? There's no question more important in this life, in my opinion, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, why is that the most important question? Of all the questions that have been asked, of all the questions that Jesus asked, of all the questions that God asked, of all the questions that all the apostles and the prophets and, and, and church leaders have ever asked, why is the question, who do you say that Jesus is, so important? Because the response to the question is life-changing. The response to the question means the difference between eternal life and death. The response to the question means the difference between heaven and hell. Now, maybe you didn't come this morning or you're listening this morning. Like, I didn't come here to talk about hell. So could we just leave that out? But I can't. You know why I can't? 
because Jesus talks about it in our passage today. So I'm going to have to talk about it, and we'll get there in a little bit. But, but this question that Jesus asks is so important because it's personal. He says, who do you say that I am? And it's so important because it requires a response and it calls for a decision concerning the identity and the authority and the significance of Jesus Christ. So each day, if your life is anything like my life, you are bombarded with mostly insignificant questions. What time is it? What are you doing? What's for dinner? How was work today? What movie do you want to watch? What's that smell? Can I stay up late tonight? Did you hear that? You want to play a game? Can I have some candy? Where's the beef? Can you hear me now? Got milk? How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? Get the idea. Insignificant questions. But in the middle of all that noise in your life, the most important question that needs to rise to the top is, who do you say that Jesus is? And the answer to that question of Jesus' identity is not defined by what the majority says or even by what we say. But what we say is significant to us because for us, that means eternal life. For us, that has eternal implications. And that also has eternal implications for everybody kind of in our sphere of influence. In the first century, there was no Google. There was a time before the internet. So Jesus couldn't type into a search engine, who do people say that I am? And so he did the next best thing. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And we see in verse 14 that there wasn't an overwhelming consensus as the, the answer of that question. The disciples responded by saying, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. And we see in Matthew 14 that, that Herod said, well, Jesus must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so there was confusion as to the identity of Jesus. And in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, there's a prophecy that says Elijah will usher in the day of the Lord. He will come before the Messiah. And so there was confusion. Jesus must be Elijah, not the Messiah. There, there was some similarities between the suffering prophet Jeremiah and the other Old Testament prophets and Jesus. So again, there was confusion about Jesus's identity, who Jesus truthfully was. And so with all those people, they just didn't know, who is this guy? Well, now in the 21st century, thankfully, we can get to the bottom of this because there is Google. Okay, once, once we have Google, all of our problems are solved. We can just type in the question, who is Jesus? And we will get the answer, right? I use Bing, okay? So I typed in, in Bing, who is Jesus? And I got 330 million responses to that question, give or take. Now, how many people are in the United States today? I want to know. 330 million, give or take. Okay, so here's the point I'm making Ask everyone in the United States the question, who is Jesus? You might get 330 million different responses, but we don't get our truth from Google. 
We don't get our truth from Surrey or Alexa or from an election or from a popularity poll. We get it directly from the source of truth, God in his word. The God revealed response to the answer is what Peter gives to Jesus's question. He says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah or son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So if there was ever a question in your mind of, well, yeah, I know people say that, that Jesus is the Messiah. I know people say that Jesus is the son of God, but, but who did Jesus really think that he was? Who did Jesus really teach that he was? Well, we can just go to the first book of the New Testament here in Matthew in chapter 16 and, and, and look no further to know who did Jesus believe that he was? How did he respond to Peter's God-revealed response? You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. Listen to what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, wait, wait a minute. I agree with you that I'm a good guy. Yes, I'm a pretty good teacher. I've done some pretty amazing things like, turn water into wine. That was a good party trick. Okay. I, I, I've healed a lot of people. I get it. Walked on water. That was my favorite. Okay. But let's hold our horses here with this son of God talk. Is that what Jesus said? <laughs> I mean, I'm great, but I'm not that great. Is that what Jesus said? No, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of God, Jesus replied, ding, 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 ding. You got it. Correct answer. Blessings on you for that answer. You must have used your phone, a friend, because you couldn't have come up with that on your own. God revealed that to you, Peter. But this conversation between Jesus and Peter, this wasn't an isolated incident. There's a similar conversation that we see throughout the gospels between Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus walked on water, his disciples said, truly, this must be the son of God. And Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Not the son of God talk again. When Andrew saw Jesus, he, he came to Simon and he said, we have found the Messiah. And Jesus didn't say, yeah, come follow me, but not the Messiah. Cool it. When Nathanael said to Jesus in John 1, you are the son of God, Jesus responded by saying, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascend and descend on the son of man. In John 10, Jesus flat out said, I and the father are the same, we're one. And if we needed any more evidence of it, that Jesus believed and that he taught that he was the Messiah, the son of God in Mark 14, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus didn't give a politically correct answer. He didn't dodge the question. He said, I am. So Jesus agreed with Peter here in Matthew 16 that he was the Messiah. And do you know what the significance of that is? 
You know what the significance of, of Jesus claiming to be God and claiming to be the Messiah is, is that it narrows down tremendously the answers to that question of who is Jesus. There can no longer be 330 million different responses to it, not if he claims to be God. In C.S. Lewis's top-selling book, Mere Christianity, he says, because Jesus claims to be God, it can really only be narrowed down to three answers. He's either mad or bad or God. And Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, said it this way. He's either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. I'd like to read just a portion of mere Christianity to you this morning. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It's a powerful passage, isn't it? Because Jesus taught that he was God. Because Jesus believed that he was God, he was either lying about it, but he couldn't have been lying about it because he was willing to die for those claims. And only a crazy person would die for something that they know to be a lie. And so, so maybe he was crazy or, or mad or a lunatic, but then his miracles disprove that because lunatics do not raise people from the dead. So that leaves us only with one response to the question of who Jesus is. He is God and Lord, which is what his teaching attests and what his life proves. But even with all of that evidence that is before us in scripture and in experience, as Jesus says here in Matthew 16, we still need God to reveal that to us so that we can come to an understanding and we can have the response that Peter did to the question, who do you say that Jesus is? I say he is the Christ. I say he is the son of the living God. All right. This next part, disclaimer, I'm not going to cry. Deal? Last week, my wife and, and my daughter and I sat down with our two boys on their bed at nighttime, right before bed. And... Uh, <laughs> I said it, it was a promise. And we, t we talked to them about who Jesus was. We talked to them about how Jesus went to the cross for them and how he died for them. This Sunday, pastor lies to congregation from pulpit. <laughs> 
And Otis and Zuri accepted Christ in their... <clears throat> Excuse me. It matters a lot to me. <laughs> Excuse me. They dedicated their lives to Jesus for the first time. It was a response that they had to make on their own. It was a response that my daughter made nine years ago. It was a response that my wife made 29 years ago. It was a response that I had to make 38 years ago. It's a response that every single person has to do individually when they are asked the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter said it. Jesus commended him for his response. And he reminded him that that understanding can only come from God. It can't come from ourselves. But, but once we know it, we just know it. It's real. Then Jesus went on to give a promise to Peter that was rock solid. In the question, Jesus focused on the Son of Man. In the response, Peter focused on the Son of God. And then in the promise, Jesus turns his gaze on Peter and focuses on the Son of Jonah. So look back with me to verse 17. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Going back a few weeks to the very first message of the sermon series, Pastor Glenn preached from John 1, and in that passage we saw that Peter's name was not always Peter. His name was Simon, and Simon's brother Andrew came to Peter and said, Simon, we have found the Messiah, and he brought Simon to Jesus, and, and Jesus, in the first moment that he saw him, turned to him and said, you are Simon, but not anymore. From now on, you're going to be called Peter. Jesus renamed Simon Peter and in Greek, that word is petros, which means rock. And so Jesus does a little word play here in Matthew 16 with the name that he gave Peter. So the, the name Peter Rock, before there was Dwayne the Rock Johnson, before there was Rocky Balboa, there was Simon Peter the Rock. And it, it was this name that Jesus gave to Peter that, that we focus on here. So the Peter says, you are... You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, that's right. God revealed that response to you. You are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. If we were going to translate that into English, it would be, you are a rock. And on this giant rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, there's been much debate over the years as to what Jesus was talking about when he said on this rock, was he talking about Peter himself? Will he build the church with Peter as its leader? Was he talking about the, the statement that Peter just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and the church is going to be built on that foundational truth? I, I think there's evidence for, for both, and I think both are good. 
Okay? Because the, the, the early church, Peter was the leader of the leaders of the early church. And the early church was built on the foundational truth of Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God. So I think both are significant, both are truthful, both are completely unnecessary to have a heated debate over. And here's why I think it's unnecessary to debate that is because it's the second part of the sentence that's really the important part of the sentence. He says, you are Peter, but then he doesn't say, and you will build the church on yourself or on the statement. He says, you are Peter, and I will build my church. So for the purposes of this morning's message, I want to focus not on the Petros or the Petra, but on the promise that is rock solid. See what I did there with the rock thing? The rock solid promise that Jesus makes is that he will build the church. And, and what pronoun does he use to describe the church? I will build my church. When I was growing up, my house was constantly full of tools and sawdust and, and stuff from various unfinished products because my dad was a carpenter and he was always, every day of the week, he was working on a house somewhere and bringing that all home. Uh, the house I grew up in, my dad built. And every time we went on a, a drive somewhere, my dad would point at a house and say, you see that house? I built that. Okay, the church I grew up in, my dad built that building as well. One night we had a family of a friend of mine over for dinner and we were all sitting around eating dinner and, and talking and having a good time. And, and while we were talking, my dad turned to my friend's dad and said, uh, you guys should join us at our church sometime. And my friend's dad said, it really is your church, isn't it? I mean, you literally built the place. And my dad said, well, I built the building, but God is building the church. And that's the point that Jesus was making here. This is what Jesus was saying to Peter here. So yeah, Peter, you're important. You're a rock, but I will build my church. This is the very first place in the Bible where the church of Jesus Christ is talked about. And we see that it's built by and it belongs to Jesus. Now in Ephesians 2, Apostle Paul is talking and he's talking about the church and he says it's built on the foundation of the apostles, which includes Peter, and the prophets, which includes all those guys that, that Jesus was confused with, Elijah and John the Baptist and Jeremiah and all the other prophets. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but, and this is the, the important part of the sentence, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together. So the church, although the apostles and the prophets and the pastors and the teachers and, and each individual member of it has a part in building in it, is really built under the power and the foundation of Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that church that we work alongside in building as a part of the body, it belongs to Jesus. He says, I will build my church. And the weight that is carried by that statement, the weight that is carried by the significance that the church is being built by and belongs to Jesus is that there's nothing that can tear it down, not even the gates of hell. Sure, individual church buildings will close. Sure, individual church leaders will fall. 
your individual church members will walk away, but the church of God, the church of Christ will endure and be victorious. It's a promise that is rock solid. Now, when Jesus made that promise, maybe it was harder to believe because there were only a handful of people at that time who were following Jesus. After he died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven, the church grew, and we see in Acts, just to just 120 people. But then the Holy Spirit showed up, and that quickly grew to 3,000 and 5,000 and tens of thousands. Now, maybe you're thinking like me, wouldn't it be nice if the church today grew like that? Now, it's easy to look at the, the political climate of the United States, to look at the unrest that is currently in our country, to look at the number of people in our community who are not attending church or following God and, and say, this must be the end. People are turning away from God, and, and I can't tell you how many people have said that to me this last year. Because I don't know if you know, it's been a tough year. But you want to know something? The church is growing. In fact, the church is growing way faster than the early church ever grew. In fact, the church is growing way faster than the church has ever grown in the history of the world. It's estimated today that, that every day, 250,000 people, quarter of a million people, accept Jesus as their Savior. In the last 10 years, it's estimated that over 300 million people have accepted Jesus. And you know how many of those people came from North America and, and Europe and westernized countries in the world? 10 million. That means over 290 million people have come to Christ in places like Nigeria and India and China in just the last 10 years alone. So when you're tempted to fall into despair and you're tempted to say the world is falling apart and you're tempted to say Satan is winning, you need to ask yourself the most important question, the question that Jesus asked Peter, well, who do you say that Jesus is? The response that, that Scripture gives us, the response that the Holy Spirit of God reveals to us is that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And since that is true, the rock-solid promise of Jesus is that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Say amen to that if you want to. Now, am I concerned for the direction that our country is headed? Yes, I am. My concern for the church in America? Yes, I am. My concern for the hearts of the people in our community? Yes, I am. My concern for the hearts of the people at Hope Baptist? Yes, I am. But there is a reason for hope. Jesus, went, when he came in with his disciples into Caesarea Philippi, there were temples to many gods around them. There were people coming from all over the place just to worship these false gods. And as Jesus looked around and he saw all of this and he saw seemingly nobody who was, who was worshiping the real God, he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, fast forward a couple of thousand years, you're here at this place and in this time, and as you look around, you see many people who are worshiping false gods. You see crowds of people who worship the God of money, 
who worship the God of perverse sexuality, who worship the gods of fame and, and popularity, who worship the gods of politics, who worship the gods of personal rights and personal choice. And imagine for a moment as you're looking at all of that and you're thinking to yourself, there's seemingly nobody who, who is worshiping the true God, Jesus walking up to you and tapping you on the shoulder and you're saying, who do people say that I am? Your response might be, well, some say a good teacher, some say a great leader, some say a crazy lunatic. But, you know, I just have friends that say, you know, nobody important. But then imagine Jesus asking you the most important question, but who do you say that I am? And if your response is the same response that Peter gave, if your response to Jesus is, well, you are the son of God, you are the savior, you are the Lord of my life, then all of that noise in the background should start to fade away. All the insignificant questions that you are bombarded with every day become overshadowed by the significance of the Savior. All the uncertainty in your life becomes unimportant. All of the fear in your life turns to faith. All of the helplessness becomes hopefulness because of the rock-solid promises of the Savior for you. If Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God, which I wholeheartedly believe that he is. If the church truly belongs to and is being built by him, which I unwaveringly believe to be true, then the only real option we have is to worship him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. We can't hold back part of our heart from Jesus if he is the Christ. We can't hang on to a little bit of our soul if he is the son of God. We can't give him just a little bit of our mind if he is the savior. We can't save only a portion of our body or our strength for him if he is Lord. He is deserving of all of it. Can I ask you a question? Who do you say that Jesus is? Son of God? I ask you another question. Are you living all of your life for him? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that Jesus is our Messiah, our Savior and Lord, the, the Son of God. We pray in his name this morning. We pray that we would live our lives in light of that truth, that nothing would be more important to us than following him, nothing. May you revive our hearts to love you more and more so that we might live each day and each moment with you as Lord of our lives. Amen.